Hello friends. Over the last few days, I have had the most unexpected and painful experience of losing my dearest friend in the world since the day I was born, Nathan Schartz, who has been on this show a couple times and on other Milieu Media Group shows several times. So today, rather than produce a new episode of 30 Pop, I wanted to just share with you a story that I produced at the end of 2019 for his 40th birthday. It's a story called Rubber Snake Road, and it's one of my favorite memories with one of my very favorite people in the world. I hope you love it as much as I do. If you want more stories like that, you can just check out the Patreon link in the show notes. I expect to be back next week or soon thereafter with brand new episodes of 30 Pop. But in the meantime, please enjoy the first episode of Smokes, my patron-only podcast, Rubber Snake Road. My mother's best friend on the day of my birth, November 15th, 1979, was a woman named Sherry, who, with her husband, Bobby, my father's best friend on the day of my birth, had exactly one week earlier given birth to their first child, a son, my best friend from the day of my birth, Nathan, with whom I'd find myself 16 years, 11 months, and two weeks later, laughing nervously in the back of a cop car, with only a video camera to keep us out of jail. This is Smokes. When I was 16 years old in the spring semester of my sophomore year of high school, a friend named Calvin invited me to help him on a school project. He was a year or two older than me and enrolled in a class called Media Technology that was only available to upperclassmen. Calvin was, and likely remains, a very interesting guy. He was one of those people who seemed to perpetually have something to prove. I'm not sure to whom or for what reason, but that need most often manifested in the form of risky, even reckless behavior. For example, I remember one particular occasion when, for reasons that aren't relevant to this story, we found ourselves in a mutual acquaintance's souped-up Mitsubishi Eclipse going 135 miles an hour on a stretch of freeway between Arlington, Texas and our hometown Haltom City at 3 o'clock in the morning. Exactly one person in that car wanted to be moving at that speed at that hour on that freeway. And it was Calvin, who had somehow managed to finagle our acquaintance's keys from his now white-knuckled hands and assume the role of chauffeur. On another occasion, I found myself once again in the passenger seat, this time of Calvin's little Ford Ranger pickup, creeping slowly down the suburban streets of a nearby neighborhood in the middle of a sunny spring day, while Calvin attempted, and failed, to pelt the brand new cherry red Corvette sitting in the driveway of some unsuspecting sufferer of a pretty severe midlife crisis with an egg. The egg in question, thankfully, surprisingly and hilariously, ended up on the inside of Calvin's driver's side window and likely all over his left pant leg. We laughed a lot. All that is to say, Calvin had a particular ability to affect my otherwise pretty risk-averse judgment, an ability he shared with my lifelong best friend, Nathan. So Calvin's invitation to help with that school video project during my sophomore year an invitation I accepted, and a process I fell immediately in love with, led to my enrolling in media technology that fall, my junior year. And it led directly to the back of the cop car I mentioned before. Calvin's a part of that story, too. But before I tell it, let me tell you about Nathan. Nathan. 
In all sincerity, I've never known a person with a more infectious charisma or deeper disregard for social cues and societal expectations than my best friend, Nathan. An extraordinary athlete born into a fair amount of privilege, rightful heir to a confidence that far exceeded the natural talents of his father, but for which he was more than adequately gifted, Nathan is an anomaly in the world, to say the least. To know him is to love him, and to spend any time with him at all is to laugh as hard as you've ever laughed. Not because he tries to be funny, but simply because he is. I consider it one of the greatest privileges of my life to have enjoyed such close access and intimate friendship with him over the last four decades, though they haven't consisted entirely of easy years for either of us. Early in our teenage years, his father, suffering from a severe midlife crisis of his own, made the inexplicable decision to trade his family in for a life of lesser pursuits. And Nathan, his greatest admirer, was left in the wreckage of that selfishness. Among the collateral damage in that season of our lives was Nathan's promising athletic career, which he abandoned for a newfound love of poetry and chemical exploration. Drugs, alcohol, nomadism, a period he refers to fondly as his Jim Morrison phase. It was in that phase that the events of this story took place. It was late October of 1996, and I was a couple months into my junior year of high school and my first semester of media technology. I had shown a bit of promise in the first couple group projects we'd been assigned in class, but I hadn't had a chance yet to really put my creativity to the test. But that was about to change. I don't remember the exact parameters of our first solo assignment in that class, but I will never forget the project I had in mind. Okay, first of all, you had access to all of that sweet-ass camera equipment. This is Nathan. And so we wanted to make a, a music video. We chose I Burn by the Toadies. The Toadies were a local Fort Worth band who'd achieved national success with their breakout album Rubberneck and I Burn was the album's closer, one that I believed would lend itself nicely to a music video telling the story of a teenage boy who was burning his life to the ground, metaphorically speaking. And Nathan was the obvious choice for the leading role. I'd get shots of him smoking, drinking, fighting with his mom, and as you'd expect in a music video for a song called I Burn, lighting fires. We started that October evening in the parking lot of what was then Midtown Church of Christ, the church I'd been attending faithfully since toddlerhood, located a couple miles north of downtown Fort Worth, which was surrounded by massive pine trees and a relatively large homeless population. I chose the location for a couple of reasons. First, I knew how to get on the roof of the building and did so often, which offered perhaps the city's best view of the downtown skyline. I thought that'd make for a few great shots. But also because I knew the area just surrounding the parking lot would be littered with empty, discarded 40-ounce malt liquor bottles. Perfect for scenes of Nathan drinking and, well, smashing the bottles under the glow of the streetlight. When we'd captured everything we needed in the church parking lot, we decided to meander out to the west side of town, to a neighborhood called River Oaks, and a road I'd only ever known as Snake Road. I knew this road well as it was located just a short distance from the front door of my very recent ex-girlfriend at the time, whose parents hated me, by the way. I'd wandered down its winding pavement many times in the 11 months and two weeks leading up to that night since I'd gotten my driver's license. 
The road curved back and forth, down to and eventually past the waters of a large man-made lake called Lake Worth. And I was sure we'd get some really compelling shots of Nathan driving recklessly around its sharp bends and turns. But to do so, we'd need a stunt driver. That's where Calvin comes into the story. Nathan didn't know Calvin, so he had to trust me when I assured him that Calvin was just the guy for the job. He knew how to drive like a maniac, he had experience behind the camera, and he was always up for a good time. So on our way out west, we stopped and picked him up. Now, I'm a little ashamed to admit this, but upon arriving at Calvin's house, I was a little embarrassed introducing him to Nathan, the recipient of a lifetime of my utmost admiration. Because he walked out the door wearing Wrangler jeans, a t-shirt, and the gaudiest, most ridiculous black and white striped high-top Reeboks, the signature shoe of White Sox first baseman Frank Thomas, called the Big Hurt. They were, in all seriousness, the ugliest shoes I had ever seen or have ever seen since despite the fact that, ironically, they now sell for over $200 online. But Nathan, thankfully, seemed unfazed by the ridiculous footwear. So we set out on our way. We arrived at Snake Road around 8.30 p.m., and Calvin delivered. He drove like a maniac. In fact, nearly clipping Nathan in one shot, in which he walked along the side of the road while I hung out the passenger side window of my parents' 1993 Pontiac Grand Dam with an enormous VHS camera slung over my shoulder. A shot that absolutely made it into the final cut of the music video. Before long, we'd gotten just about everything we needed for the night. All but one shot. The closing shot for the video. The pièce de résistance. At precisely the point where Snake Road descends to the shores of Lake Worth, it crosses under one of Fort Worth's main freeways, Interstate 820. The shot we intended to get in that location would be of Snake Road itself, straight down from the 820 bridge, where in the dark of the night, we'd have written the words, I burn in fire. Once again, Calvin was the man for the job. I was busy directing and operating the camera, and Nathan was busy starring in the music video. So Calvin's job, one for which he was beyond qualified in all of our teenage minds, was as pyrotechnician, the keeper of the flame, the lighter of the fire. Just past the freeway bridge where Snake Road intersected with the frontage road, there was a gas station. Calvin walked over to the gas station while we were setting up, carrying only a blue styrofoam bowl we'd found littering the side of the road and a paintbrush that came from God knows where, and proceeded to purchase, somehow, about 12 cents worth of gasoline, which obviously went into the bowl. He returned victoriously with gas bowl and paintbrush in hand, Nathan standing by, waiting for the call to action, and me up above, leaning over the railing of the 820 bridge, bulky camera pointing straight down. He painted the words across the pavement, lit a match, dropped it, and then, there, mingling with the light of the burning street, were the lights of a Lake Worth police officer. The last thing I saw before standing upright in a state of sheer panic was my lifelong best friend Nathan, walking with casual coolness, not a hint of perceptible fear in his step, straight through the middle of the flaming words. 
I turned and in an instant there he stood, right by my side up on the bridge as though the smoke had lifted him, and we ran down the freeway, in the dark, across the lake, leaving behind all evidence of our involvement in the street fire. All evidence except the camera in my hands, our ugly-shoed friend, and my parents' car, which sat under the bridge, windows down, keys in the ignition, and my license and insurance on the seat. We made it a mile or so down the freeway, laughing and nervous and terrified, before a different police officer who'd been dispatched to the flaming underpass pulled over and flagged us across the busy freeway. As a bit of a reckless driver myself in those days, I'd had an encounter or two with police officers, but none so angry as this guy. Before loading us up in the back of his car, he frisked us. Twice. So he's going through my pockets, and I, this wasn't my first rodeo. I had been frisked before because I, I started dabbling with some things, and I can't for the life of me remember why, but I had a rubber snake that was chopped up into pieces in my pocket, and so the cop starts going through everything, and he's, you know, he's got a pen, a lighter, you know, a, a wallet, then he gets a torso of rubber snakes, then he gets the head of a rubber snake. <laughs> I swear to God, that cop must have thought I was on peyote. But it's just the most insane search I've ever gone through in my life. After searching us, and somehow, perhaps miraculously, finding no illegal substances on Nathan's person, the officer confiscated my video camera, or rather, the school's video camera, put us in the back of his car and raced us back down to the Snake Road underpass, where another officer was waiting for my parents, whom they had already called, to come pick up the car. We didn't get much information at that point. The cops stood outside, watching our footage and determining our fate, with Calvin nowhere in sight. Nathan and I discussed our fate as well. Him with significantly less concern than me, though my fear was likely invisible, as our anxiety manifested in the form of laughter. Like big laughter. Belly laughter. Tears streaming down our cheeks laughter. It was almost euphoric, in fact, to be so afraid, but yet so uncontrollably giggly. At some point, the officer tapped on the glass and asked, muffled through the window, where's the other guy? What? We asked back, as though we had no clue to whom he was referring. The other guy, with the striped shoes, who was lighting all the fires. And there it was. Video proof that neither Nathan or I had committed directly a single act of arson. We have no idea where he is, we replied, and we didn't. Not a clue. But as it turns out, Calvin knew exactly where we were. He was watching us, wide-eyed, from behind one of the massive concrete pillars at the shoreline holding the bridge up above our heads, dodging the officer's bright flashlight waiting for his chance to run. And his chance came about the time my parents arrived on the scene. The cops distracted, he ran and dove headfirst into the nearby brush, which just so happened to be poison ivy, and began running like a fugitive up the winding road with only his Wranglers, t-shirt, and those ugly freaking shoes to protect him from the thorns and the cold October air. My mom drove the car home, and my dad loaded Nathan and me up into his truck. Because the video proved our relative innocence with regard to the fire, the officer in whose car we'd spent the last hour, in hopes of teaching us some kind of lesson, issued each of us a $500 curfew ticket. 
two weeks before we'd turn 17. Seven minutes after the citywide 10 p.m. curfew for kids 17 and under went into effect for the night. As for Calvin, I wouldn't learn what happened to him until an hour or so after I got home that night. I was in bed with the lights off when my phone rang. It was Calvin on the other end. Cold, itchy, and exhausted. After hiking for miles to the top of Snake Road, to the front door of my very recent ex-girlfriend, whose parents, upon hearing the story, hated me just a little bit more. While I did get a pretty stern talking to from my media tech teacher about the incident, at the end of that school year, I wound up winning an award for that music video, an award I was able to show the judge before whom I had to appear in court for that $500 curfew ticket the next summer, which he promptly dismissed. Nathan, on the other hand, he wasn't so lucky. But that's his story to tell. Smokes is written, produced, edited, and mixed by me, Luke Bronner. I'll have more stories for you soon, but in the meantime, thank you for partnering in the storytelling work of Mill U Media Group.